I'm not asking for you to applaud, but how about that orchestra tonight? And uh, really appreciated that very, very much. And, and Jessica sings, plays the flute, and who knows, next time she might accompany herself on the flute while she sings. <laughs> that would be a whole lot of fun. For Can you arrange that, Doc? Can you? <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's been a great evening. Uh, a great evening because the Lord Jesus Christ is in view just as he's been unveiled in these scriptures. The majesty of the Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for that. And thank you that for those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what a great encouragement and comfort it is to know that we're on the winning side. To understand that as the events of even this present time are unfolding, and they get uglier and uglier, and it's going to get even worse. It will be unparalleled, the evil that will be here. And thank you that we're with the Lord Jesus. And thank you for the encouragement of these very words tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The majesty of Jesus. We're in Revelation chapter 1, looking at verses 4 through 8. And those scripture verses have been read for us. We've already learned several things about the book of Revelation so far. We've seen what I like to refer to as the proper title in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus being unveiled in His full glory, in His majesty. Remember that when He was here on earth, there were miracles, there were a lot of other things that were done. But the Lord Jesus in His full glory is being unveiled to us in the pages of Scripture. We've also seen the process of making it known in the first two verses. It went from God the Father to Jesus, to the angel. Then it went to John the Apostle. And then it went to God's servants. Who are God's servants? It would be all of those who want to serve Him. All of those who want to acknowledge His Lordship, His, the fact that He's the Master. And it wasn't limited to the people of that time. That would be to those of us as well as this is revealed to us as we see it together. And this was probably about 95 or 96 A.D. when this was written a long time after the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven. The Apostle John was probably very young at that time and lived to this particular period of time. We've seen promised blessings in verse 3. And I believe that one of the reasons for the promised blessing may very well be to offset the discouragement that Satan would try to bring to anybody who would want to study this book because Satan doesn't want this book studied. It is the the premise throughout this book that there's only one victor and that's going to be the Lord Jesus and there's going to be somebody who's going to have an abysmal defeat and that's going to be Satan himself. Now we want to move ahead and look at something else that is there and we're going to back up to verse 3 just to see something about the prophetic nature of this book. You'll notice in verse 3 where the book of Revelation is referred to as the words of this prophecy. And oftentimes you hear the word prophecy in association with the book of the Revelation. There are two different aspects that can be meant when the word prophecy is used. One of them has to do with forth-telling. A prophet is God's mouthpiece all through the Scriptures. He's declaring, telling God's message to people. For example, if you look at the Old Testament prophets, and some of this is going to be a paraphrase, but... They want us to be sure to know that God is holy. 
And you can see that being foretold. Think about Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They may be also giving a message of repent from your sins over and over again. God has an indictment against his people or God has an indictment against this other group of people. So we see that constantly there in that forth-telling aspect. Summarize the message of the prophets. Often you get this message, shape up or ship out. But there's also a sense not of forth-telling, but of foretelling. That's predictive in nature. This is a look into the future, telling what's going to happen actually before it does occur. This message occurred throughout the scriptures, something like this. If you don't repent, you're going to be taken captive into a country that you really don't know much about, but it's going to be a ruthless warlike country. It's going to be Babylon. It's coming. That prophecy is coming. It is a little bit of foretelling, but it's also a whole lot of foretelling what would be happening. In many cases, God's prophets both foretold and foretold. The message that God had for his people often contained a look into the future, either for blessing, or it could be for judgment, or it could be for both. The book of Revelation, the context continually tells us that this is a book of largely predictive prophecy or foretelling. Certainly there's foretelling going on, particularly in chapters 2 and 3, but all through the book there's some of that. But we're to take to heart and obey the words of this prophecy, the foretelling as well as the forthtelling. Almost every chapter in this book has something to do with the future. And we can see that whether you think the um, the rapture is in view as early as chapter 3, as we alluded to last week, it may very well be. But certainly by the time we get to chapter 4, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, the eternal state, all of those are future from John's time and all of those are future from our time. So everything that is written there is going to be foretelling. It's going to be telling us what's happening in the future. At the center of the prophecy is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. By the time we get to Revelation 19.10, we won't need a reminder, but by the time we do get there, Revelation 19.10 declares, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about Jesus and what's happening in the future with the Lord Jesus. And that's why tonight as we look at the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't help but be overwhelmed with that. The Apostle John had already written in his gospel and in one of his epistles how we should react to the message of the coming Lord Jesus. In fact, seven times it stated that the Lord Jesus would come. We see it in verse 7 in the text before us. In chapter 2, verse 25, hold fast what you have, the Lord Jesus says, until I come. Chapter 3, verse 3, I will come, he says, like a thief. We also see in chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus says it again, I am coming soon. We see in chapter 22, verse 7 and verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. He repeats it three times in that last chapter of Revelation, and the, the third time is by the time we get to verse 20. And in verse 20, he says, Surely I am coming soon. And so the Lord Jesus over and over again, seven times, I'm coming. I'm going to be there. 
How should we react to that? Well, the Apostle John tells us in some of his other writings how we can react to the message of the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming back again. First of all, it is a comfort. It's a huge comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled, John said earlier. Believe in God, believe also in me, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me forever. It doesn't get much more comforting than that. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, there's a challenge to pure living. Uh, also in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, challenge to pure living. And now, little children. It's the way he would address the believers, not because they were young, but they were maybe young in the faith. But little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There's a, a challenge to pure living. My grandmother always used to tell us this all the time. She said, be very careful what you do and where you are because you don't want to be ashamed when the Lord Jesus comes back and finds you in some place where you don't belong or finds you doing something you shouldn't be doing. And I didn't realize at the time that that wasn't just wisdom coming from an older lady, that that's actually right here from this verse in 1 John 2.28. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So that certainly is an incentive to pure living. Also in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, when he's not calling us his little children, he's calling us beloved. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The more we see of the majesty of the Lord Jesus, the more purity that we see and experience, the more pure we become. And that's the point that's coming from that scripture. Let's take a look now at the people who are addressed. We've already seen them in verse 1. People addressed were servants, but there's more to it than that when we look at verse 4 and then even ahead to verse 11. We won't get to that tonight. But we've already seen in verse 1 to show his servants all of us under the Lordship of Christ to acknowledge Him as our Master. But then verse 4 specifically singles out seven churches in the western half of Asia Minor, now Turkey. And verse 11 names the seven churches, and we won't name them tonight. There were specific congregations forming local bodies of believers in the towns mentioned. Question comes to mind, seven churches there. Were there only seven churches in Asia? And the answer would be no. There were a lot more churches than that in Asia, even at that time. Colossae and Troas are two that come immediately to mind. So he was not addressing all the churches there. He was, rep- he was doing a representative address to them. So why only the seven? I believe because they represent the entire church of the Lord Jesus Christ, both then and now. As we look at the characteristics and the needs and the the, the judgment may be even coming, the rewards coming to these churches. We can look at that church from all time and say this is a good representative group of churches. All of us can identify in some way with those churches, and we'll see that as we go through the, the two chapters after this one. Interesting that there are seven churches. 
I think most of you understand seven is not a random number in the Bible. The number seven is used all throughout the Scriptures, but more frequently throughout this book than any other number. In fact, the number seven appears 55 times in the book of Revelation. Symbolizes completion or perfection or totality. Seven is often used to picture something that is complete or full in God's processes. Now, I'd like to to have a visual imprint on us with the number seven in the book of Revelation, number seven of completeness and fullness. I need somebody who's fairly tall and somebody who is uninhibited. And I'm looking around and, wow, there's Ray, right up front. (laughs) No spoken lines, but would you come up here and just help us for just a moment? Off to a bad start. I hope you didn't hurt yourself and you just tripped. This is a cue card, and what I'd like you to do is simply hold this up. You'll know exactly when it is. And when he holds up, it's a number seven. When he holds it up, love everybody just to say seven. But I know some of you are shy. Ray will help you because when he holds that up, you'll know it's time for everybody to say seven. So don't hold it up until the time comes. And hold it up so they can see it, not you. Okay? Are you going to nudge like that? I'm not even going to nudge you. You'll know. I have great confidence in you. How many days of creation were there? Great. How many colors make a perfect spectrum? How many, how many musical notes make up a scale? How many days make up one week? The fall of Jericho, how many priests and trumpets were there? And on what day did the people march around the wall? How many times? How many set feasts of Jehovah are there in Leviticus 23? Gotta trust him for that one. How many secrets in the kingdom parables? How many last sayings of Jesus at the cross? Come on, keep going. Louder. How many days off should pastors get per week? All righty. Thanks, Ray. (laughs) Thank you much. I hope that left a visual imprint on us. Number seven is very significant for a lot of reasons. But realizing in the book of Revelation... Seven churches, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven spirits of God, seven seals on the scroll, seven angels with seven trumpets, seven bowls containing the last seven plagues, seven thunders, seven thousand killed in the earthquake of chapter 12, a dragon with seven heads and seven crowns, the beast of chapter 13 with seven heads, seven mountains, chapter 17, seven kings. It's no wonder that when I was a young boy growing up through junior high and high school and college, I always wanted the number seven. If I couldn't get it, I wanted 21, three times seven. If I couldn't get that, I got the number that I could closest to that. Uh, sometimes we say seven is the number of perfection, more so the number of completion or fulfillment. It's something that, it, that really brings out the fullness of something, and that's what we have here before us. It goes from there to see a personal greeting, and what's really, really fantastic here, we get a personal greeting, I could say from God, but it's from the Trinity. There's a personal greeting here from the Trinity. If you take a look at what's there before us in the second part of verse 4 and into verse 5, it's, it's very, very significant. John identified himself, first of all, as the human author. Unlike modern letters where the writer signs at the end, at that time the writer of the letter identified himself at the beginning. It seems to make more sense. They didn't have envelopes with return addresses like we do. But I still like to know who is writing before I get to the end. I don't know about you, but if there's no return address, 
I don't like to start reading without knowing who it is. Maybe you like the suspense. But to these churches in Western Asia Minor, the greeting of verse 4 is more than just a trite expression. Grace and peace. They're used a lot in the scriptures. They're used a lot in the letters. This greeting would be very meaningful to the people in these churches because, remember, there's intense persecution going on. Maybe the kind of persecution that we're headed for in our world today. It doesn't take a lot of imagination, does it, to see things going south very, very quickly in our world and in our country as we see things happening all the time. At this particular time, the Roman Emperor Domitian was involved in all kinds of persecution against people from these churches, and some of that is specifically mentioned in chapters 2 and chapter 3. Grace shows God's attitude toward us, his favor that he shows us. Somebody has said that it's God's riches at Christ's expense, that it's unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but God just keeps on giving and giving. He gives us what we don't deserve, we've never earned. He just lavishes his grace on us. Peace speaks of our relationship to him. We can be secure in our position before God in our fellowship with him. The troubles can come, and they will, but they can't take anything away from us. So this greeting from the Trinity, all three members of the Godhead included in verses 4 and 5, him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. It's a reference to him. That title is used only in the book of Revelation. It's used twice in our scripture tonight. God is described in terms so that we can understand him. We understand that kind of language. He is, that means he's present, he was, and he is to come, but it's kind of an anthropomorphism because God is timeless, and it's helping us to understand a little bit about God and, and a little bit about that timelessness. And then secondly, it's from the seven spirits before his throne, the Holy Spirit. Seven, again, the number of completeness, depicts one Holy Spirit in his fullness, we could go back to Isaiah 11, but we won't take time to do that tonight. The sevenfold spirit of God, they're resting upon the one who would be coming. The root of Jesse, the Lord Jesus Christ. The sevenfold spirit, and here we have the seven spirits before his throne. And so as we're, as we're reading this, John is writing from a human standpoint, and he's saying grace to you and peace from God the Father, that's him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then even more significant in this passage is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's mentioned last and in much greater detail since he's the one that this book is going to be revealing to us. He's described in terms that would encourage a persecuted people. First of all, he's the faithful witness. And at this particular time, and we're told in the future, this will be happening over and over again. There will be a lot of false witnesses. There will be false teachers, but there will be false witnesses. People will be getting accused all the time. But there is one who is faithful and one who is true, and the faithful witness is the Lord Jesus, the same one who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a faithful witness. Also, we see in John eighteen thirty seven. You are a king then, said Pilate, talking to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
we can be sure that we have one faithful witness, the Lord Jesus, despite the fact that all around there will be unfaithful ones. So the, the, the Lord Jesus, the faithful witness, also the firstborn from among the dead. Not necessarily chronologically, there were others before him. Protokos does not mean firstborn in time sequence, but in preeminence or supremacy or rank. The Lord Jesus was uniquely special in that, the firstborn from among the dead. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ is the absolute sovereign of the whole world. And so you can call them chancellors or presidents or dictators or kings or whatever you want to call them. But the ruler of all of them is the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It's ahead of our story, but it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And in Revelation 19:16, On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. A man by the name of Layman Strauss lists scriptural pictures of Jesus as the king of heaven, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the king of the ages, the king of glory, the king of saints, the king of kings, and also as the mighty prince of the kings of the earth. And I love it in Daniel. Even though it's coming from Nebuchadnezzar, he refers to the Lord as the Lord of kings. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he's the Lord of kings. Any of you here a little uptight about the election coming up? Anybody maybe not as optimistic as maybe you've been other times? It's all right. There's one sovereign. One sovereign, and if we read Revelation chapter 13, the one that's going to be there is the one that, that God permits and God appoints for whatever his purpose may be. And it may not be our purpose, but it's certainly going to be God's. Look at the praise to Jesus as we see the uh, end of verse 5 and end of verse 6 because John launches here into a doxology of praise to Jesus. We're seeing again the majesty of the Lord Jesus. We're seeing the unveiling, the revelation of Jesus himself. And we see something here that's very, very true. Jesus loves us. And it's an unbreakable love. You remember Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? What can separate us? Can't hear you. No, thank you. Nothing can separate us. And then this long list, because somebody will try to think of something, and God anticipates everything. You can't go high enough or low enough or wide enough. You can't go anywhere to find something that can separate us from the love of God. So Jesus loves us with that unbreakable love. And he demonstrated that love by freeing us from our sins by his blood. This is the heart of the gospel that we're now seeing. It tells us to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The Bible makes it very clear, and I don't think any of us need convincing. I've run into a few people, but not very many people who need to be convinced that we're all sinners. We're all enslaved to sin. We're all in bondage. We're placed on eternal death row while our sins are unforgiven in and of ourselves. But because Jesus loves me, as Mark pointed out, is more than just a kid's song. 
Before the Civil War, they would sing it. The adults would on the battlefields. Jesus loves me more than a kid's song. He freed us from our sins at the cost of his own blood. That horrible, horrible death on the cross, both physically and spiritually. He was our substitute. He paid our penalty. Our sins are forgiven when we place our faith and our trust in him and we believe in him and we surrender to him. One author illustrates, I smelled something burning, so I hurried to the kitchen. Nothing was on the stove or in the oven. I followed my nose through the house. From room to room I went, eventually ending up downstairs. My nose led me to my office and then to my desk. I peeked beneath it, and there, peering back at me with big eyes pleading for help, was Maggie, our dog, our very fragrant dog. What smelled like something burning when I was upstairs now had the distinct odor of, what do you think? Had the distinct odor of skunk. Maggie had gone to the farthest corner of our house to escape the foul smell, but she couldn't get away from herself. Can you picture that? This poor dog overwhelmed with that stench. I got to get away from it. There was no getting away from it because the stench was now her. There's no escaping our sins. That's the point that's made all through the scriptures. We can't get away from it. We can try to run. We can try to hide. But our sins are always going to be with us. And there's only one way to get rid of them. If you Google how to get rid of a skunk smell, if that ever happens to your dog or anybody that you love, uh, there are ways to do that. But it's tough, and it doesn't go away all at once. One way to get rid of our sins, and that's why the tribute is paid to the Lord Jesus here in verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Ever since Adam and Eve hid after sinning, we've all followed their example. We run away from situations thinking we can escape the unpleasantness only to discover the unpleasantness is us. The only way to escape is to stop hiding. It's to acknowledge our waywardness and let Jesus' blood wash us clean. And it tells us not only that, he made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve the Father. We can have direct access to God. We don't need a mediator. We only need Christ. How do we respond to all of that good news? To Him be glory forever and ever. To Him be dominion forever and ever, it tells us here in these verses. And then we have something very significant that comes in verse 7. We see the first of the seven promises of the Lord Jesus that he's coming back again in this book. I'm quoting from one of the Bible commentators here. I think he summarizes things very well here. The book of Revelation is the ultimate action thriller. Anyone who loves books filled with adventure and excitement will certainly love this book. The amazing revelation contains drama, suspense, mystery, passion, and horror. It tells of apostasy by the church. It speaks of unprecedented economic collapse and of the ultimate war of human history, the war that will truly end all wars. It describes natural disasters. God will pour out his wrath on the sin-cursed earth. 
It speaks of the political intrigues that will lead to the ascendancy of the most evil and powerful dictator the world has ever known. And it takes a lot to top some of those that we've had. Any of you who've studied history understand that there have been some times when it's almost unspeakable what's going on in the name of some of these dictators that have been there. Finally, and most terrifying of all, it describes the final judgment and the sentencing of all rebels, angelic and humans, to eternal torment in hell. The book of Revelation is thus a book of astounding drama, horror, and pathos. Yet amazingly, it is also a book of hope and joy with a happy ending, as sin, sorrow, and death are forever banished. And we read that last week from chapter 21. It will take some time for the drama to unfold. So like any good writer, John gives his readers a preview of what will come later in the book. That is verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. You see that word, behold, the beginning of verse 7. Some of your translations will have the word look instead. Behold or look, it's an arresting call to attention. It's a wake-up call, and it appears quite often in this book. It's intended to wake up the mind and heart, to be ready to hear what follows. Pay careful attention. Sometimes our moms used to tell us that, I want you to listen carefully, because she knew we weren't listening carefully. And even when she said that, it was difficult for us to do that. This word, behold, is going to be used 24 times in the book of Revelation. It's kind of like, get a load of this. Check this out. You're not going to want to miss what follows. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Jesus is coming, present tense, indicating he's already on the way. His coming is certain. His coming is imminent. Could occur at any moment. Even though there are those who deny the second coming. In fact, let's turn there. Let's, let's turn quickly there. Second Peter chapter three. It's just back a little bit if you're still there in Revelation. Second Peter chapter three. They're always going to be the cynics who are going to be around. And verse three. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. And what do you think scoffers are going to be doing? It's what scoffers do. They should do a commercial on this. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's what they do. Following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Even though there are those who are going to say that, there are going to be those who are going to be quite cynical. Bible presents more than 500 verses throughout that Jesus will return. It's estimated that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the second coming. And one day included in that crowd who are going to see him are going to be those scoffers and are going to be those who've rejected the Lord Jesus. It says, every eye will see him. Some will mourn because of genuine remorse and repentance. Many will mourn because they're doomed. 
Interesting, the word mourn is from kopto, Greek word, which literally means to cut. The word becomes associated with mourn due to the pagans' practice of cutting themselves while in extreme grief or despair. The Gentiles' mourning, for the most part, is going to be prompted by terror, not repentance. They will mourn because of their doom. We won't take time to go to Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, but it's going to talk about some people who flat out refused to repent despite some things that were going on that, that should have caused anybody to take notice, but they didn't. And then as we continue to look at the text before us, the end of verse 7, even so, amen. John is using the strongest words of affirmation in the Greek and the Hebrew language to plead for Jesus' return. Even so, amen. And the last point that I want to look at tonight is simply the parade of God's attributes in verse 8. What a special verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's like God placing his signature on verse 7. It's like when in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then God says, I want to sign that. I want you to know that that has my approval. Here's who I am. And this is all going to come about. God's omniscience is seen there. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. God is everything. The beginning and the end and in between as well. He's everywhere. He knows everything. He's eternally timeless. The one who is and who was and who is to come. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, because he's referred to here as the Almighty. A man by the name of John Phillips writes this. One of the most stirring pages in English history tells of the conquests and crusades of Richard I, the lion-hearted. While Richard was away trouncing Saladin, his kingdom fell on bad times. His sly and graceless brother, John, usurped all the prerogatives of the king and misruled the realm. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of the king and praying that it might be soon. Then one day Richard came. He landed in England and marched straight for his throne. Around that glittering coming, many tales are told, woven into the legends of England. One of them is the story of Robin Hood. John's castles trembled like bowling pins. Richard laid claims to his throne. None dared stand in his path. The people shouted their delight. They rang peal after peal on the bells. The lion was back. Long live the king. One day, a lion and a king far greater than Richard is going to lay a claim to a realm far greater than England. Because the Lord Jesus himself, the lion of Judah, the Lamb of God as well, but the Lion of Judah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of kings, is coming back, and he will make everything right everywhere. There are people in the meantime who have abused what is here now. There are those who think they're in control. Satan thinks that he's the, the prince of this world right now. There is a time coming. And I'm going to close with this summary from John Walford. Some of you know that name in writes a lot of, of biblical prophecy. Jesus Christ, 
is the central figure of the opening verses of Revelation. And so he's going to summarize for us, and we're going to see the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in review. As the source of revelation, he is presented in verse 1. As the channel of the word and testimony of God, he is cited in verse 2. His blessings through his revealed word are promised in verse 3. In verse 5, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is revealed to be the source of all grace who loves us and cleanses us from our sins through his shed blood. He is the source of our royal priesthood who has the right to gather in himself all glory and dominion forever. He is promised to come with clouds, attended with great display of power and glory, and every eye shall see the one who died for men. He is the Almighty One of eternity past and eternity future. If no more had been written than that contained in this introductory portion of chapter 1, it would have constituted a tremendous restatement of the person and work of Christ, such as found in no comparable section of Scripture. And what he's saying is that we've been on holy ground with these five verses tonight as we viewed the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and understand the future is not bleak. The future is fantastic. And yes, it could be bleak for those who are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to be on the winning side, to be with Jesus, is all the comfort and encouragement. The current events, the headlines are going to get worse and worse. And I think that there are those among us who would agree that as we're looking at this world today, it is absolutely a tinderbox. And we have the capability to do things in this world today that have never had before the mass destruction that could occur at any moment. And we're not worried about that because of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the unveiling of the Lord Jesus They led him away to be crucified. He could have twinkled an eye and annihilated all of them, but he didn't because there was a purpose. There was a plan. And all of that took place. It was finished. Jesus paid it all. And now we look to see the end of all things. And we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We can't wait. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.